It's when we read texts like Psalm 101 and that I'm always, it's, it's, it's moments like that when the refrain that we say at the end of scripture readings kind of pops out to me, you know, because we, we liturgically end our reading of the Old and New Testament with this is the word of the Lord and we respond as a congregation, thanks be to God. We, we recognize that the word of God as we receive it is gift. And then, and then you read a psalm like Psalm 101, and it says, I'm going to destroy the wicked. I'm going to destroy evildoers. I'm not going to have anything to do with liars. I'm not going to have anything to do with the deceitful. A lot of things that we ourselves are. And I'm, I'm going, you know, and we say, this is the word of the Lord, and we say, thanks be to God. I, one of the challenging things about singing the Psalms is singing things like Psalm 101. You're not going to hear that in many churches. You're not going, if you don't sing the Psalms, there are not a lot of hymns that are written off of that. Certainly not a lot of praise choruses that talk about, uh, you know, slaying the wicked and greeting them every morning with destruction uh, in order to free the city of God from idolatry. Um, and so it's, it's a challenge as we, as we do sing through the Psalms. It's a privilege to be able to sing the text that we're looking at this morning. And yet, of course, it comes with challenges to be sure. What do we have before us in Psalm 101? Well, we have the words of a king. Again, as I've already mentioned in previously in the Psalms, we've been having these wonderful and glorious calls to worship, calling and summoning the kingdom of God's people to worship the one true God. And here in Psalm 101 now, David, the king, sings a song declaring before the kingdom and back to God the kind of king he's going to be or that he's vowing to be. This is what I'm going to do, Lord, as the king that you've established. I'm going to be this kind of king, and this is going to be the kingdom that I will seek to build and to preserve. And it's a challenge indeed. One that we know is as we read over it, it, it it's... I think to myself, well, this is, in, in some sense, this is the inspired word of God giving us a picture of the kind of king he wants to be. This is the kind of king that God wants over his kingdom. One who will sing of the mercy and the justice of God. One that is a king, as we look at the very beginning of Psalm 101, a king who will take up in himself the calls to worship that have been coming from the other Psalms. Enter to his gates with thanksgiving and before his courts with praise and sing unto the Lord. And the king here in Psalm 101 says, yeah, I'm going to do that. I'm, I'm going to sing. We, God wants a singing king. And a king who recognizes the mercy and justice of God and who will sing praise to the Lord. And David says, I'm going to be that. He wants a king who will behave in a what the New King James says, a perfect way. Other translations, if you have them before, you will say, will live blamelessly. And of course, this doesn't, he, he's not saying, David is not saying that he doesn't think he has any sin. We know that because he confesses his sin in other Psalms. But the fact is that he's going to intend, he's going to give himself to keeping the law and the expectations of the king that the Lord gave, particularly in the book of Deuteronomy. Hey, this is what the kings should do. And David says, I will act wisely. I will live blamelessly. I'm going to pursue the path, Lord, that you've given to me. 
God wants a king who, again, in verse 2, cries out to God and looks to him. When, O Lord, will you come to me? David, he even here in the beginning of this psalm, recognizes his own insufficiency. Yes, he's going to seek to walk blamelessly before the Lord and wisely before the Lord, but he acknowledges he needs the Lord's presence with him. When will you come to me, O Lord? And I will walk, again, he says in verse 2, in my house with a blameless heart. That is, I'm going to seek after you in all my ways. In verse 3, a king who will protect his eyes. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. And I hate the work of those who fall away. Lord, that will not cling to me. I, I am I'm going to guard not only my eyes, but I'm going to guard my company. I'm, I'm going to guard myself from being surrounded by those whose ways lead them off the narrow path. I'm not going to let that cling to me. This is the kind of king that God wants. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. Now remember, this is within the, the course of the king, right? This is the king protecting the kingdom and his council, his cabinet, his men and women around him. But also for the citizens of the, of the kingdom, this is going to be the heart of the king and it's going to manifest itself out through his administrators and then out to the people. And I'm not going to tolerate slanderers. I'm not going to tolerate liars. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will destroy. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not endure. The king is not going to endure slander. He's not going to endure the proud and the haughty. The wicked, I'm going to purge them out. Verse 6, my eyes instead will be on the faithful of the land. Those who are faithful, they'll be my counselors. Those are the people I'm going to surround myself with. Those who are faithful, those who also desire to seek the Lord in blamelessness. Those who are pursuing faithfulness, they will dwell with me. He who walks in a perfect way, he will serve me, or as we said he, my minister, shall be. That is, he's the one that will be my counselor in my kingdom. But he who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. Early I will destroy the wicked of the land, that I may cut off all evildoers from the city of the Lord. This is the kind of king, at least a, a, a picture of the king. This is the kind of king that God intends for his kingdom. And David says, yep, I'll, I'll, I'm going to be this kind of king. But you and I know David. <laughs> we've, we've read the stories of David. While David may say this, and it's a wonderful thing to say, and it's a wonderful thing to sing of himself, we know David's reign. Unfortunately, David did not follow through. David did not guard his eyes. In fact, he let his eyes wander. We know this. David did not guard and, and, and remove all slander and all lying and deceit. He himself was deceitful. He himself lied. Or rather than purging the wicked, he entertained wickedness. And while he did bring death, he brought death upon the innocent, upon Uriah. And of course, he, because of that, the Lord 
acknowledged part of the judgment will be there's going to be trouble within your kingdom. And David fails to live up to the very claims that he makes in this psalm about being a kind of king who will pursue righteousness. And where is the man then? Where is the man who will be a king like this? I mean, after David, it doesn't get much better. I mean, Solomon does pray for wisdom. And the Lord grants it. What a wonderful thing to ask for. You've asked me for something, the Lord says, and you ask for wisdom? Here, I'll grant it. You didn't, you didn't ask me for riches. You asked me for wisdom. Well done, Solomon. And so he's, okay, well, we're off to a good start here with Solomon. But we know how the story of Solomon ends. Solomon acts terribly unwisely by taking to himself many wives and then building altars for, for his wives to worship their gods. And then after Solomon, the kingdom rips in two, and then it's just one bad king after another after another. And in Judah, we do get a couple righteous kings, but it's one bad story after another after another. And if we zoom out from Israel, I mean, Israel is the household of God in a certain sense, but if we zoom out from Israel out to the world, where is the righteous king? Where is, where is this kind of king? Where is this kind of kingdom? Again, I go to Revelation 5 when you know, the Lord seated on his throne has a scroll sealed perfectly with seven seals and and the angel of the Lord is searching, is there anyone worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? Like who, who is able to bring about the purposes and plans of God? Here, God has in his hand, his right hand, his decrees, his perfect plans for the city of God, for the new Jerusalem. And who is the king? Who is the one worthy to break the seals, to open the scroll, and to accomplish the plans of God? Who is worthy? And again, you'll remember, there was no one. There was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And John wept because there was no one able to accomplish it. That little search there in Revelation 5 is like the whole scriptures. It's, it's everything leading up to Christ. It's who is worthy. Adam's not worthy. Noah, he's not worthy. Abraham, no, he's not worthy. Jacob, he's not worthy. David, one after the other after the other who is not worthy to open the scroll or to loose its seals. They're unable to be the king of Psalm 101. They're unable to establish the kingdom that is promised here in Psalm 101, the city of God that will be protected. I'm going to cut off evildoers from the city of the Lord, a pure and righteous city. There's none worthy. No, not one. And John weeps, you'll remember. He weeps and he weeps because wouldn't it be wonderful to have a, a new Jerusalem? Wouldn't it, wouldn't it be wonderful to see that bride descend from heaven in all her glory? pure and radiant, but there's no one worthy. No, not one. And then the elder approaches John and he says, do not weep. I know there's every reason to weep. I mean, again, when we went through Revelation, you might remember, I said at that time, if you are not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, frankly and honestly, the only thing you're justified in doing in life is weeping. There's really not a cause for anything other than weeping. Because in the end, it's all chaos. In the end, it's all meaninglessness if Christ is not seated on the throne. 
That is to say, in some sense, Christians are the only one vindicated in not weeping. Because the elder comes to John and he says, do not weep, behold, look, the lion of the tribe of Judah, he has prevailed and he is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals. And John turns to see the lion of the tribe of Judah and he sees the lamb standing as if slain with perfect power, seven horns, and perfect knowledge, seven eyes. And then all creation starts to bow down in this cascading this cascading praise that just ripples through the rest of Revelation 5 in this beautiful way. Because there is one worthy. David writes Psalm 101, he sings Psalm 101, but he is not the king of Psalm 101. Jesus is the king of Psalm 101. We need a king like this. We need a leader like this. But there is none worthy other than Jesus Christ. He alone is the King of kings and Lord of lords. He alone is the one worthy to take the scroll, to break its seals, and to accomplish it. For he was slain, and he has borne the sins of the world. Well, if we read Psalm 101 as a psalm on the lips of Jesus, now it really gets challenging. And I believe this is how we should read it. Jesus is the ultimate singer of the Psalms. I mean, all the Psalms ultimately are either being sung by Christ or they are pointing us forward to Christ. And Jesus is the king who alone can truly sing Psalm 101. But is this the Jesus you want? It's not the Jesus our culture wants. We like Jesus meek and mild. We like Jesus who just accepts everybody as they are. We like the Jesus who never has a hard word to say to anybody. Just invites everybody to come sit on his knee. That's the Jesus we like. But do we like the Jesus of Psalm 101? We need such a king, and brothers and sisters, the news of the scriptures is that we have such a king. Jesus is the king who sings the psalms. Jesus is the king who worships. Jesus is the king who seeks the presence of his father. Jesus is the king who actually does walk blamelessly before his God. Jesus is the one who seeks wisdom. Jesus is the one who will gather around himself the righteous. Jesus is the king who keeps his eye pure and blameless. And Jesus is the one who will cut off the wicked. You know how Revelation begins. You also know how Revelation ends. And in the end, the birds come circling around. They may eat the flesh of the slain, those who oppose the Lord God. I mean, Jesus comes riding on a donkey when he enters Jerusalem, but when he comes again, he comes riding on a white steed uh, bent on war with a sword protruding from his mouth. And with that sword, he slays the wicked. He is the king of Psalm 101, the victorious king, the righteous king, and the king who will establish a city for his God that is pure. Can we read this and say the word of the Lord? Thanks be to God. Again, we might have reason to tremble because again, as we've already confessed, we are the unrighteous. We are the wicked. We are the deceitful. We are the slanderers. 
And so we can understand why it might not be our instinct to say, oh, praise, thanks be to God. Until we consider the one who is the true king of this psalm. Why is he worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? The saints sing around him and in Revelation 5. You are worthy for you were slain. He was slain. I mean, the amazing thing about the king of this psalm is that he is the slayer and he is the slain. He is a lamb standing as if slain and as such, he is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He is both of those things. He is the only reason we can read Psalm 101 and say, thanks be to God. Because if it is not for him, then it's our necks on the line. But we can say thanks be to God because the king who finally and fully sings this psalm is the king of kings who was slain on behalf of the wicked so that in him the wicked may be righteous. He is a unique king that sings this psalm, but he is this king nonetheless. We need a righteous king and praise be to God, we have it. But secondly, we need, so we need a righteous king and we have it in Jesus Christ. But now let's think for a second about the kingdom that our king establishes. And that's where we are now involved because we are the city of God that he is purifying, right? The church is that kingdom that he is establishing. And what kind of kingdom is he establishing? And the answer is a holy one as he is holy. And hence our readings today are challenging readings from 1 Corinthians. Again, they're not texts we often read, but they're important for us to read. Because Paul is challenging a church in the city of Corinth, which seems to forget the fact that when Christ calls a man or woman, he calls him or her unto holiness. Again, we preached through Revelation, uh, uh, excuse me, Romans 8 a few months ago when we were thinking about the implications of the resurrection. And you'll remember, for God works all things for the good of those who love him, who are called according to his purposes. For all those he foreknew, them he also predestined. And then you'll remember that in that little bit right there about predestination, he then throws in the reason or the end for which one is predestined and known. For all those he foreknew, them he also predestined that, so that, here's the reason they were, that they may be conformed to the image of his son. That is to say, when we are saved, we are not just saved from something, we are saved unto something. You were saved to be something. God is building a city and a people. Again, in the end of Revelation, Right? In the beginning of Revelation, we have the scroll sealed. But in the end of Revelation, when indeed the scroll has been unfurled and the purposes of God accomplished by the Lamb, what is the end result? The end result is the bride of the Lamb, radiant and glorious. Remember, the angel says, come, John, do you want to see the bride? And when he goes to see the bride, what does he see? He sees a city. A new Jerusalem, beautiful and radiant, descending from heaven. This is the city 
that he has established, his bride, his people, and it is beautiful and it is without sin. It is purged. This is what you and I are part of. This is what you were saved unto. This is the process and the work that the Holy Spirit is doing within us. We need this king of Psalm 101, but also we need to be the people of this psalm because this king is doing something. He's purifying a city, and that is the church. And the Corinthians were struggling with this, okay? You got guys in there marrying their dads, you know, they're basically their stepmom. Okay, they, 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 they kick up a romantic relationship with their stepmom and, and, and Paul's like, what is wrong with you? And apparently sexual immorality, I mean, it's just not a problem. It's what we do. We're Greeks. We're Corinthians. I don't know. It's what everybody in the city does. Like, okay, yes, I'm a Christian. That is, I, I have a set of beliefs over here. I have new beliefs that I didn't have before, but my life is still Corinthian. And Paul's like, no, no, let me break this to you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. You are not Corinthian. You're a Christian. You serve a different king. Your body is inhabited. Your life is not your own. You have been bought with a price. This is what it means to be a Christian. And therefore, it reorients everything we do. And this is the city of which we are a part. And then Paul has really strong words. Words that are very offensive to us. He says, let me tell you this. Not only should you not pursue sexual immorality, you should have nothing to do with those who do. Just like the king here in Psalm 101, hey, I'm going to put these things away from me. I'm not going to have any, I'm not going to surround myself with the unfaithful. I'm not going to surround myself with the immoral. I'm not going to surround myself with the idolaters. I'm not going to surround myself with the haughty and the proud. Those whose ways are froward, as we sang in the psalm. Yeah, and and Paul comes to the Corinthians and says, yeah, that's what the church needs to take up, the character of its king. And the many you think, wow, that sounds really judgy. Like, what, what do you mean? Don't surround yourself with sinners. I mean, that sounds... That sounds haughty, doesn't it? And then Paul comes in and goes, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not talking about non-believers. Oh, no, you can have plenty of non-believing immoral friends. I'm talking about believers. If I told you not to surround yourself with immoral people, well, then you'd have to be taken out of the world. You couldn't even, you couldn't even live in society. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the church. It's like, oh, ow, oof. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't even eat with them. Again, this isn't Bill Spanger up here giving you some, some of his advice. You know, this is Paul to the Corinthian church. Like you in the church, we in this little flock and the church universal ought to turn its judging eyes first to itself. Paul said, or excuse me, Peter says in 1 Peter 4, judgment begins with the household of God. Now, I don't know about you, but I am really good. I'm like a pro, a trained professional at spotting the sinfulness of my culture. Okay, I'm, I'm really good at seeing all of the problems with the culture. I know Anna likes to call me out on this. And I need it. She says, Bill, you talk about the culture. You just this lump umbrella thing about the problem out there. 
And that's true. I, I, we, she and I have had good conversations over this. It's so easy to see the problems of the culture. But Paul says, that's a, Bill, great that you're good at that. Who's not good at that? That's not what he's calling us to. The king here, notice the king is not talking about the evildoers, the idolaters, the deceitful in all the other kingdoms. He's talking about his kingdom. And there should be a priority for us within the church, for us within the church. This is, if you will, what church discipline is about. And church discipline, where it happens, and let me tell you, it's a very under, you know, under uh, accomplished thing or whatever word I'm looking for within the church. So you don't hear much about church discipline today because we view discipline as a bad thing when it's a loving thing, right? A parent, what does Paul say, or the author of Hebrews say, you know, if a child is not disciplined by his parents, it's like it's like a illegitimate child. You're not even really a child. A parent loves a child, and they discipline. And so, also within a church, like we ought to care about that. And when we think about church discipline, <coughs> it starts okay on some. It, it, I shouldn't say it starts. We think of it in terms of a formal level, like okay, with the session or the elders, and discipline has to be wrought. But that's that's certainly not where Jesus saw church discipline starting. Remember, he says, when someone wrongs you, what do you do? Run and tell the elders so that they can begin formal church discipline. No, where we see it, a brother goes to a brother. A sister goes to a sister or a brother and sister, right? It's like, no, it, we, because we love the body, we care about this stuff and we ought to care about it because our king cares about it. We have not, we're not just on this like, it's not like we're saved and then we just got to get through the rest of our days. But the good news is you just kind of buckle up, hold tight, and then eventually you go to heaven. The Christian life is a battlefield. There's work to be done. There's holiness to pursue. And Paul is telling the Corinthians to get after it, to care about these things, right? Even in their judgment with one another, like seek good counsel and settle it among yourselves. This is what brothers do. This is what the church does. This is what life looks like within this kingdom and within this city. So we do have a righteous king, a king who lives blamelessly and a king who unbelievably died for the sake of his unrighteous people that they might be brought in and purified and, and made members of this city. No one is naturally a member of this city. Anyone who's going to be a member of this city is done so by grace alone. But now that we are members of this city, brothers and sisters, we need to take on the character of our king. And we need to guard the church and our eyes need to be there first. Not that we can't say a critical word to the culture, but again, in some sense, what do you expect from those who are dead in sin to those who are slaves to sin, to those who are blinded by the God of this age? I mean, this is biblical language. This isn't my language. But we, we who have tasted of the heavenly gift, we who have been enlightened by the Spirit, we who have the eyes of Christ, we who have been made alive together with Christ. We who are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. This is where our eyes need to be first. So we need such a king, and then we need to be such a kingdom. And then finally, let's get even more personal to us as individuals. We need to be these kind of men and women ourselves. It's, it's not even, I, I want to encourage you not even to let your first glance, we say, we're easy. It's very easy to see the sin in the culture out there. Okay, so we need to have our eyes on the church. But it's also pretty easy to see one another's sin. 
even in the church. And I think that the first place we've got to be is back to, to us. You and I personally need to take on, in Christ, to take on the character of our king in Psalm 101. That in Christ, and I, I, I say this so that we don't end up with a moralistic, legalistic sermon. The only way you and I become citizens of this kingdom is by grace alone, because the king has died for you, or else you're done. You will not be a member of this kingdom. You entrance in this kingdom is by the narrow way of Christ and by being covered and clothed in his righteousness, as we talked about in our assurance of pardon this morning. But within this kingdom, brothers and sisters, you and I personally need to seek the character of the king. You and I must be holy as he is holy. We must cut off evildoers, but the evildoers that we must first cut off is not that guy over there or not that person, though within the church it may need to come to that. And Paul says as much. But the first thing you got to do is cut your right hand off. you got to pluck an eye out. This is what Jesus says when he says, hey, listen, if our right hand causes us to sin, forget about that guy over there within the church. Although, again, I'm not completely forget because that's part of it. But if your right hand causes you to sin, then take on the character of Psalm 101 and cut off evildoers from your midst. If your right eye is causing you to sin, cut off evildoers from your midst. Take the right eye, pluck it out, throw it away. Better you enter into glory missing an eye than going to hell with clear sight, he says. We must take that passion for holiness. The hard words of 1 Corinthians, these such people will not enter the kingdom of heaven. They will not inherit the kingdom. In Revelation, in Revelation, at the, at the very end, as we talked about, when the, he come, I'll show you the bride, and he went to see the bride, and, and the, the new Jerusalem is coming down from heaven. Here's just before he, he sees this vision of the new Jerusalem descending in all her radiant glory, which you and I will be on that day. Here's what he says. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of water of life freely to him who thirsts. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. And you're like, yay, that's good news. That, yes. And then it would be great if we just went right from there. You know, I will be your God, and you'll be my son, and now look, here's this radiant city. But then there's this verse thrown in there. Between I will be your God, and you will be my child, and here, look at the beautiful city, Verse 8 is thrown in there. But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. There is this reality that we must cut ourselves off from these things. We are, we do live in a culture, and I'm not blaming the culture, but it's part of what we live in here, that again just wants to tolerate everything. We shall call nothing out. 
Repentance is a lost art. Confession of sin is a lost art, a lost discipline. The pursuit of holiness and the passion for holiness, the passion to pursue Christ-likeness, the the old Puritan's ideas of the mortification of the flesh. As John Owen said, you better be killing sin. If not, sin will be killing you. So put to death the deeds of the flesh. That kind of language is very passe. Because we don't like calling anything sin. We find it so difficult to do. And if we find it difficult to do in general, then we're going to find it very difficult to do with ourselves as well. But the challenge of this psalm is to rejoice in the king who himself was righteous, to rejoice in the king who by his grace has made you righteous, to rejoice in the king who is establishing the new Jerusalem, a city that is holy and pure, in which evil has been completely cut off and will be no more. And to rejoice in the fact that he is doing that same work in you. And therefore, we are to take that work up ourselves. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God in you, both to will and to do for his good pleasure. This is not grit your teeth and white knuckle your way into obedience and holiness. He is with you. He is in you to will and to do according to his good pleasure. But nonetheless, we are to take up the call. And we are called to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And we are called to pluck out our right eye and cut off our right hand if necessary. If that is what it means to follow this king and to be part of this kingdom and to be obedient to our king. Praise be to God for a king of righteousness. Praise be to God for the new Jerusalem and our membership in it. May God give us the grace to pursue holiness even as our king is holy. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we have confessed corporately, so we feel compelled to confess again that we in and of ourselves are unclean, that we are unholy, that we have not cut off sin from our midst. Lord, we're sitting here with good right hands and with clear right eyes. And Father, where things need to be cut off, we pray that you would give us the strength to do it. Heavenly Father, help us, we pray, to be holy as you are holy and to rejoice to know that we are citizens of the new Jerusalem, this glorious and amazing kingdom that Jesus Christ, the only worthy and righteous king, has established. Thank you for the robe of righteousness that he gives us that we might have access to the great wedding feast. Bless us, encourage us, challenge and convict us, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.